2: Hey, I'm in Los Angeles. I have the privilege of talking with the VP of Government Affairs for LACI, or the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. I've been there. Really cool building and even more cool projects uh, that's going on there. So, uh, great to have with me Michael Swords. How's it going?
3: It's going great. Thanks, Tim.
2: We're brought together by this conference, but not too far from here is... This building, this Cleantech Incubator, that is so unique because it has this element of job training, it has uh, it, it has all these different experiments that are being done, uh, you've got people that are co-working there. Tell us a little bit about the mission of the Cleantech Incubator.
3: Well, the mission of what I call LACI, uh, L-A-C-I, uh, the Los Angeles Cleantech Incubator, is to support the growth of an inclusive and equitable green economy here in LA. And we do that by providing entrepreneurs and innovators with uh, access to a world class facility. So it's 60,000 square feet of space. We have 30,000 square feet of co working, 30,000 square feet of world class laboratories. We have an advanced prototyping center. Uh, we have a micro-grade R and D center. Uh, we have a 175 kilowatt solar farm that powers uh, part of our operations. Um, but more importantly, what we provide are programs that support entrepreneurs. So we have uh, 40 staff. We have seven, what we call entrepreneurs and residents, uh, or executives and residents, I should say, who uh, are coaches and mentors and advisors for our companies. And so uh, the entrepreneurs that we bring into what we call our portfolio company program have access to all these coaches, most of whom have uh, C-level experience. Uh, some of them have C-level experience in multiple uh, organizations. And so uh, they've created a series of programs that are designed to help the companies grow. Uh, we They you know, talk to them about finance and marketing and legal and HR and um, product development,
2: man, I love this about what you 're doing there. I mean, the fact that you are kind of growing these entrepreneurs and they 've got the opportunity to take an idea and to then bounce various aspects of that business off of people that have had experience that 's so cool, but you 've also repurposed an old building too, which is one of the most unique things about this. Tell us a little bit about about the building
3: yeah, so we occupy what many people. Uh, Considered to be the finest innovation facility anywhere in the United States. Um, It's a uh, 60,000 square foot building that was built in 1928. It was a warehouse for the Barker Furniture Manufacturing Company, and it was in use for about 40 years, and then it was vacant for about another 35 years. And um, the city picked it up about eight years ago. They put forty million dollars in renovating the space, and now it is its, it's name is the La Innovation Campus. It's owned by the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, which also makes it very unique because it's it's owned by a publicly owned utility, a municipal utility. You don't see very many municipal utilities anywhere in the United States creating an innovation facility let alone one of this this scale.
2: In Atlanta, we have this Atlanta Tech Village, this co-working space, but what I was so intrigued about with what you guys are doing out here is that this just just isn't any and everyone co-working. These are people that actually have a, a mission towards sustainability, technology as it turns in terms of clean energy. Tell us a little bit about the parameters for what you have to be doing to be able to get into your building.
3: Well, you have to be a clean tech startup, essentially. So you have to be a company that is focused on developing a product or a service that will make better use and more efficient use of natural resources. That is pretty much our our bar. But in addition to the startups that we have in the space, We also have some organizations that we let into the space because they're supporting the overall ecosystem of sustainability. So, the National, uh, or I'm sorry, the U.S. Green Building Council has a a desk there, the Environmental Defense Fund, the Mayor's Office of Sustainability, uh, the California Air Resources Board, which is arguably the most important subnational climate regulatory agency in the United States. And we've tried to, you know, create a true ecosystem of support around these startups so that um, not only are they getting assistance in building their company, but they're getting the chance to interact with organizations that are trying to create a landscape in which their companies can thrive.
2: You know, one of the things that happened to me after I toured your facility and met with your folks and I went and saw a facility in Munich on a trip that was similar with, with just clean tech businesses is I went back to Atlanta and said to Cox Enterprises, who owns this microphone, uh, they own Cox Cable out here, they own a number of different media outlets. Our show is recorded there. But I, I said to Cox and to Georgia Power, uh, because Cox was really standing up this really cool electric mobility facility centered around electric transportation. And I, I kind of pitched a vision to folks in atlanta couldn't we do something like they've done in la or in munich where we have an area that uh, that attracts companies like pivot which is cox facility georgia powers electric transportation division and others in atlanta you know where they can either co-locate or work very close together and is there is there some synergy that happens is there value to being close by. And what is that?
3: Yeah. I mean, as far as we know, this facility, the Kratz Innovation Campus, is the only incubator in the United States that is co-located with the utility. And that opens up all kinds of opportunities for collaboration between the technical staff and the engineering staff who work for the utility and the entrepreneurs who are trying to create technology that's going to help. The ratepayers of the utility save money on their energy and water bill. And so that was the thinking from the very beginning and that's why the utility got behind this project was they are mandated by the state to help the ratepayers reduce their energy and water consumption and they are supporting this ecosystem which is going to facilitate the development of technology, products and services that are going to help the ratepayers actually achieve those goals.
2: You know, I saw a couple of really cool businesses out there. pickmysolar.com, which helps folks get uh, multiple bids for solar on their home. If they're, if they, it gives them the companies that that they need to contact, companies that have been vetted uh, that you can trust. I thought that was cool. Then you had that little lab over there where they had the Cessna airplane that they were putting solar panels uh you know t- tell us about some of the folks that are that are there that that you've launched and that you've helped to incubate
3: the first company that you mentioned pick my solar they've created an online solar marketplace tim have you ever used kayak for travel i use priceline mostly okay pick my solar has created an online solar marketplace where homeowners who are interested in putting solar on the roof can go online and tell the website, okay, I want to offset 100% or 75% or 50% of my energy needs. Pick My Solar goes out and gets nine solar contractors to bid against one another for your business. And Pick My Solar estimates that they can drive down the cost of a typical solar installation on a residential home by about 15 to 18%. So if you're putting on a 20 twenty five thirty thousand dollar solar system on your roof, fifteen to eighteen percent is some real money. And you as a ratepayer or as a homeowner, you don't pay anything to pick my solar. Pick my solar gets their fee from the contractor. So you can save a significant amount of money and you don't even have to worry about handling all the negotiations. They handle all that for you. I'm using Pick My Solar right now and it's been tremendous. I've spent a total of about 45 minutes, and I'm going to have a solar system on my roof in two weeks. It's been amazing. I I, I, I said three, but it's nine. I mean, that's incredible. Oh, yeah. Well, they go out and they get nine contractors to bid against, and then they offer you what they believe are the three best bids. You choose which bid you want, and then pick my solar handles, all of the negotiations and the paperwork. They handle the permitting. They take care of everything. And now they're also expanding into home storage. So, not only will they help you get a solar system on your roof, but they'll help you get a solar uh, st- or an energy storage system set up.
2: In our final minute here, where are you going in the future with Lacey, with the LA Clean Tech Incubator? What's ahead? Is it more folks or just continuing your mission of just? finding another entrepreneur, launching them, and just doing this over and over again?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, we obviously want to help as many promising startups as we can. Uh, We're constantly looking for the best and the brightest uh, entrepreneurs and startups from not just California, but from wherever they are in the world. So we would love to have, you know, right now we have 20 companies in our portfolio. We have another program called the Innovators Program that has 15 We would love to have 40 or 50 companies in the portfolio this time next year, but we're also trying to have an impact on Los Angeles outside of just economic. We're trying to make an inclusive and equitable green economy for L.A., and that's one of our big, hairy, audacious goals for the coming years. That's
2: incredible. It's great to have you on the show. Stick around for more tips on how to save money, how to use technology, and to be more sustainable. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. calm. John, one of our sponsors for the show, Row Insulating Company, is doing a great job in and around Athens being able to do a lot of what we talk about every single week on the show.
4: You get, every time it gets cold, every time it gets hot, it's always, a, it's always that attic that's the problem. And uh, you could attack windows, and that's going to cost you a cold fortune. It is insulation that can solve the problem.
2: Hey, if you want to get this fixed, call 706-795-2854. That's 706-795-2854, Roe Insulating
4: Company. Roe support for energy matters comes from arnold golden and gregory agg takes a business sensibility approach when advising clients agg provides industry knowledge attention to detail transparency and value to help businesses and individuals achieve their definition of success agg subscribes to the belief not if but how we appreciate their weekly support of energy matters
2: well, we're back on Energy Matters. This is Tim Eccles, and I've gone from being at UCLA to being at Emory University, and I'm here with Doug Mile, Mile who works for the Georgia Chamber. Welcome to Energy Matters.
5: Good morning, Tim. Welcome. Thank you.
2: And you, you guys are doing a lot at the Georgia Chamber. I mean, you don't work, just work in Metro Atlanta, you work all over, and you're on that energy committee. Tell me a little bit about the committee and some of the things that the committee's looked at in the past. Well, thank you.
5: Firstly, the, the the Chamber is statewide, so we've got this, that statewide footprint. Our Energy and Natural Resources Policy Committee, that's the, the group of members who develop and review the Chamber's suite of policies in this field. So we cast our eye over federal policies, over national uh, policies, global policies, state policies, and make them relevant to Georgia. So so that's our charge across energy and natural resources. Here it's very much energy and water. So they're the, they're the two drivers that really keep us busy. Doug, one of the things that came out of this UCLA conference, which was
2: the 100% clean energy group uh, sponsored by Environment America. One of the things that came out of this, even from the UCLA organizer to me after the event was that each state kind of defines what clean means. Each city defines what clean means. and I think the Georgia Chamber of course, is being involved in helping uh, helping
5: to really cultivate that definition of what clean means in Georgia. Exactly, and and that's the beauty of how you get ownership. You know, you, you, rather than a top-down approach, you allow each individual community to identify what it means to them and how they can make it happen. So rather than being prescriptive and something that's imposed from on high, they can have local ownership, they can get their own little activation groups going and it, it just gives ownership and it gives commitment and we see better results with that sort of approach. So we very much support that. It allows each community, each region to identify their strengths and weaknesses and work on, on capitalising on the strengths and uh, overcoming and building on uh, ways to get through the challenges of, of the weaknesses in their communities and regions,
2: you know, you take a community like Athens Clark County, where I'm from, and Athens Clark has imposed some special taxes on their county. You know, they have definitions of their own, and one of the things that they wanted to do is improve their biking infrastructure. So they taxed themselves, and they are going to spend about forty million on biking infrastructure. So. A, you know, a county like Twiggs County or Taylor County may not care anything about biking infrastructure, and they certainly shouldn't have to pay for it. But Athens Clark biking is important, and I think this is an example where local control really matters. And so, it doesn't really it, it, for for me. Hey, if if Athens Clark wants
5: to tax themselves and build this thing, hey, they can do it. More power to them. Right. Absolutely, they are obviously responsive to their communities or they are making the case and leading their communities to a point where they believe that everybody will be better off. So so that's the example of those leaders in those communities having a vision, building alliances within their community to make it happen, far better than having it coming out of the state capital or out of out of DC and, and being imposed and having no local ownership. So we support that sort of initiative uh, and not just on... the on the social and community infrastructure, but no different across the business community as well. You know, if if business own it, if it works in their area, it's more likely to be sustainable, they're more likely to commit to it rather than just meet the basic threshold of some regulatory uh, imposition that they have to have, you know, have a commitment to but no ownership of.
2: Our audience may recognise your Australian accent, and certainly, you know, we've, we've been talking about, you know, city jurisdictions, county, state federal, but while when we start talking about other countries and how other countries handle energy, it's often very difficult to just transfer one principle, say, from Germany to the U.S. or from Australia to the U.S. What's going on now with
5: energy in Australia? Over the last decade, there's been a big reform process to get from state-based across to a national energy grid, and it's had a whole pile of, of unintended consequences, and a lot of stumbles along the way. I don't think it's a model that I would particularly want to see imposed in Georgia, but it's a good learning example because you can you can see how good intentions didn't deliver outcomes. It's, for example, it stalled a lot of investment in in generation because uh, the, the wrong market signals were being sent. So we, we've now got a lot of black brownouts, a lot of blackouts happening during the peak of summer and winter demand, and that wasn't what the reform was all about. So like with water, there's been some good things happen, some very aggressive reforms, but they haven't all borne fruit the way that a lot of the policymakers thought. So like here in the US, there's a lot of change happening... A lot of things have happened. We've got to learn, and we we can't be shy about trying new things, but we can't be shy also looking over the border to see what worked there. Is it appropriate here? How can we make it work differently here? So lots of things happening there. We are a large coal exporting country, so there's challenges there. We're a large uranium exporting country, yet n- nuclear power just cannot get off the ground in Australia. Large solar. So a lot of the same challenges we've got here of getting the new technologies in, a lot of the same challenges we've got as far as getting consumer acceptance of different ways of using their energy. But you know, we haven't found, uh, like here, the, the perfect scenarios, but we're working on it. You know we're
2: here at this uh, climate conference here at Emory, and one of the one of the ways we've defined clean here in Georgia is that clean that nuclear energy is included with clean uh, because it's carbon free and its emissions, and certainly that's a controversial topic here today, and it was a controversial topic in Los Angeles when I was there you know to the point of the organizer out there is each state gets to decide and and Doug one of the things that the organizer said to me is as I was getting ready to leave he said well commissioner you don't really have to worry about it because you and your colleagues are setting the definition you get to set the definition because you're duly elected by the people of Georgia and that is your job and so for now you get to define what clean is and we certainly have appreciated the chamber having our back because the chamber has been a very strong supporter of plant vogel of nuclear energy in georgia and do you anticipate that continuing
5: absolutely you know and The the all of the, all of the above energy policies that the chamber has, of which nuclear is a critical component, all go into the reason why Georgia this week was named one, number one state in the in the nation for the seventh year in a row to do business. So, it's critical that we keep our minds open to a diverse energy portfolio. That we be very aggressive in promoting new renewable sources, but not forgetting the the very valuable role that nuclear plays in our in our legacy baseload power. And as I say, we're going to have uh, two new uh, Plant Vogel uh, reactors o- online in the next 12, 24 months, perhaps. And that's leadership, not just in the nation, it's leadership in the world. So a lot of people around the world are looking at Georgia, and I think we can be proud of the position collectively that we're all in.
2: Now, when you think about what's happening in California, forest fires raging, some blame um, their forest practices as a part of that. I certainly don't want to throw stones at them. It's a It's a tragedy. It has, according to one of the staff members on the California Energy Commission, those forest fires over the last two years have undone all of the CO2 savings that they had with wind and with solar in 10 years Certainly, they should be motivated to get get it under control. And how much control do they have over the wind? None. How much do we have control over the hurricanes? None. I mean, acts of God are acts of God. Our forestry management program in Georgia
5: is something we're proud of. Absolutely. And that was on display here yesterday at the climate conference with the Georgia Forestry Association, just highlighting the absolute valuable contribution that that industry is playing to Georgia's economy. I think from memory, 37 or 38 billion dollars a year millions of acres across the state but going back to the forestry management that's just a reflection of people with good intentions you know over the last 2 or 3 decades who forgot you know about the legacy issues of how forests are managed cool season fire management to keep that volatile timber load or, or, or trash load out of the forest. We went through exactly the same situation in Australia with the same consequences, and now the worm has turned, the cycle has turned back to recognising that forestry management... As communities get closer and get entwined into those forests, you, you cannot dismiss the fact that you've got to manage them because they are volatile, they are deadly, but they are still a natural resource that is, is valuable. So th- there's better ways than what's happened. We've got to go back and learn from our practices in the past, and not forget that some of those gave pretty good outcomes. So, but as I say we're fortunate here. Georgia is a very, very progressive forestry management regimes in place, and I don't anticipate us having those. Same same sort of, uh, you know, d- devastating fires they had in 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 the western states. Thankfully, but you know, y- your hearts go out for the people who are impacted there because fires are just awful to or, or, to confront. Whether you're a firefighter or whether you're a family and community that they're impacted.
2: I confronted one of the activist groups there about this, and he said that a compromise has been reached uh, in the sense that they've got these small one to two megawatt portable biomass uh, facilities that can be just connected to the grid kind of portably and that they are starting to do this around northern california in order to clear out some of the the timber that's on the ground because he said that one of the additional problems is that composting it doesn't get rid of the beetles and that you have to burn it to kill the beetles. So, uh, I do think that you know they're trying to work within their, uh, you know their. Uh, constituency of, of the particular ideologies of Californians and you know we're working within the particular convictions and, and, and ideologies
5: of Georgia. Exactly and that might be a good localised solution but you're not going to do that over thousands or millions of acres those technologies, it might work around the edges of a, of a major urban area just to reduce the load there but generally speaking we've just got to respect the fact that there are a, a, a good ways to manage those, any natural resources uh, and forest sadly is, is one that we can see has not been done as good as it could and it's got deadly consequences for communities and and even our first responders.
2: Well it's been great having you on Energy Matters uh, thanks for all you're doing at the Georgia Chamber for the great work that you guys have we appreciate you. Thank you very much Commissioner. And this is Tim Eccles with Energy Matters on the road at the Emory University Climate Conference. We'll be back in just a
1: bit.
2: Creative Solar USA is a Georgia-based turnkey installer of innovative solar panel systems. They're dedicated to energy solutions for both your home and business. With their NABCEP certified installers, they ensure their clients receive the highest quality of solar energy systems in the industry. Contact CSUSA today at 770-485-7438 or go to creativesolarusa.com.
0: This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Georgia Solar Association. We interrupt this episode of Energy Matters to take you outdoors. On
2: the road again. Hey, this is Commissioner Eccles with Energy Matters on the Road. And today, Freddie Cardoza, the Chief Supply and Risk Officer for Gas South, is with me. Welcome to the show. Thank you very
6: much. Happy to be here.
2: You know, uh, a lot of folks have natural gas uh, in our state. That's the folks. That's the methane coming in the pipeline to your house, not propane. In case you have a tank, but Freddie, it's not a simple procedure necessarily to get that gas from that wellhead, I guess, to that burner tip. Explain that
6: process. That's correct. A lot. Of it's involved in the in the whole process. There are a lot of. Uh, people, companies, and resources that are used to move the gas from the production facilities all the way to the customer, or as we say, to the burner tip, to the gas stove, or to the other appliances that use natural gas. It all starts at the production area. We call collectively the production areas, uh, namely the wells where the natural gas deposits are found. And um, there are several techniques for drilling and, and, and extracting that. That that gas, the uh, very common one nowadays, uh, an important source of uh, of natural gas in the United States, is from the shale deposits, and that's done via fracking and horizontal drilling. That allows to extract a lot of the gas that is trapped in those deposits. Then, typically, hold on a second. I want to stop. I want
2: to stop right there because I know that fracking has come under a little bit of a criticism, but really. I mean, drilling is the first step, I guess, to pulling up natural gas. And and that drilling procedure has changed. They used to drill straight down, but there was a change in in how they actually drill, which is the first part. Can you explain how that happens?
6: Yes, absolutely. So the initial case, uh, the most common one, was... um, um, People will find geologists will point to where uh, natural gas was trapped in its gas state un- under uh, underground, of course. And the most common or easiest way will to to drill a vertical well and, until you hit the deposit, and the gas will come out relatively easy from from that deposit. Now. Um, I think back in the back in the forties and fifties, they started developing horizontal drilling, which is the ability to drill vertically and then turn your bit kind of ninety degrees and continue drilling on a horizontal manner. They did a lot of that for exploring of oil, but those techniques were also used for natural gas eventually,
2: you know it kind of reminded me of that laparoscopic surgery yeah. right where you stick in a you know, a tube or a camera, or and, and that thing kind of snakes around, and right. and eventually you see it. So, uh, anyway, as you as you horizontally drill, it allows you to do what that straight vertical drilling didn't allow, right?
6: Absolutely. So you can you basically get two advantages. One is you can turn your bit and you can point to the right direction and, and find their deposit and all that, but also you can have multiple horizontal. Uh, uh, wells for the same vertical one, so the same rig that you see um, on top, uh, on above ground. I mean, the same rig can have several horizontal uh, drilling going on underground.
2: So let, let's just think about think about how efficient that is. If you've got a, and I was out in Western Colorado as a guest of W P X Energy, and I went out to these, what they said were ten acre drill sites uh, and that, that they were doing at a time. So, you know, if you, if you only have one well per 10 acres, uh, that's, you know, I would say that's way more intrusive than if you're able to have multiple wells on the same 10-acre site uh, in terms of being able to get more per
6: acre, right? It is way more efficient. Absolutely. That's a very important metric that we have seen. A very clear uh, trend in the last uh, eight to ten years or so, which is the number of individual rigs have been has been decreasing, but then the production overall has been increasing, which points to the much higher level of efficiency of the amount of gas that they're able to extract per rig. You know what surprised
2: me when I was out in Western Colorado, not too far from Grand Junction, uh, you go past the ski resort, head out that way, What I was surprised about is the big engines that they had that were drilling. They had three of them, um, but they were running themselves on natural gas. I was thinking they would be running on diesel, and this would be a polluted site or something, but these things were running actually on gas that they had pulled up out of the ground. I mean, how much more cleaner is drilling now than it was in the 40s or 50s? It's got to be substantial.
6: Absolutely, and um Efficiencies have improved all across in several of the techniques in handling of, of waste resources that are used in the production and all that. All those techniques have improved and have become more efficient. What you're indicating that the usage of the gas to run the, the machines that do the wells and all that, that's a very efficient considering that the alternatives on many sites has been historically to flare gas that until you get to the point that you can extract it and move it to the pipelines and all that, a lot of the gas was flared and continues to be flared, but if you have an ability to capture some of that to power your machinery and equipment, it in, in, uh, improves efficiency overall.
2: Folks, you're not going to hear this anywhere else except on Energy Matters, that where, we're, where we're literally drilling down into drilling and helping you understand that you know before today's technology... A Well was drilled. Gas was was flared for could have been weeks. Uh, But now that gas is being burned in those engines. We all know that when you go into a Lowe's or Home Depot and those forklifts are running on methane, natural gas or propane, how much cleaner it is. You're not dying when you're in Home Depot. You would be if it was gasoline, if those vehicles were running down, emitting carbon monoxide. So this is way more cleaner. Fred, let's move to now after the 21 days of drilling, which is what WPX told me they typically did in order to get that well cemented in uh, and, and and move that drilling equipment over to the next 10-acre pad. Now the fracking trucks come in. They were red Halliburton fracking trucks. And they came in, and they spent just a week there, and they were done. What What is a fracking crew drew, doing during their one-week appearance on, on, on that 10-acre site?
6: Well, they're basically, in very simple terms, they're breaking up the rock, the rock that holds the natural gas trapped. So they use um, a mixture of chemicals with some water um, and sand, I believe. Um, to, and inject that uh, under pressure, and that will fracture, h- hence the name fracking, fracture the rock, fracture those deposits, and that, that releases the natural gas that is trapped in those uh, uh, rock formations.
2: Yeah, and that's what, uh, in fact, the sand that you mentioned was something they showed me. They took me over to a pile, and I picked up a little sand. The grains were a little bit bigger than I, than than the beach sand I'm used to down at the Gulf. They were. It was just a larger particle. And then I was told that even some Georgia kaolin, uh, which is essentially can be turned into ceramic, uh, and that in some instances they can actually use an artificial sand, uh, but they. They did, as you said, they put that sand down there under pressure. And then, uh, but w- one of the things that, that they said was a regular maintenance issue was collecting water that came back up mm-hmm. and then taking that water with a water truck back over to the uh, the water reclamation and purification facility. How does that work?
6: Well, I don't know all the details, but uh, based in, in, in high-level terms, the water is only used to break up the rock. So they, they don't need it for the actual production of natural gas or thereafter. It's just for the initial process of breaking up the rock, cause, causing the small fissures in, in the rock formations. That So once they've done that, they can try to the, uh, take the water back. Together with it comes with some chemicals and other products that they use to stabilize it and, and and optimize it. But it's basically just for that initial part of the process. WPX
2: told me that they had about 40,000 water trucks. And these were uh, a single axle dual wheel water truck um, that they would uh, pick up water. I mean, they were very conscientious about doing it because that's one been one of the criticisms. So they, they make sure they collect this, take it back, treat the water. And I'll remind our listeners that we do this with sewage we do this with human waste we treat it and get it to a place where you can actually drink it again uh and so this water cleaning technology is at work in every county in georgia uh and is it is at work in western colorado so after it gets in what they call the retail line out there how does it how does it eventually get here to georgia
6: well the i think the first step is it goes through the gathering pipeline system which kind of as the name says gathers the gas that is being produced from the wells and gets it together it needs to be brought to pipeline grade natural gas and that means the content the content of methane versus ethane needs to be within certain standard ranges and a it is also any impurities or uh, water or, or other content, that undesirable content in natural gas. Once that gas is being brought up to the right standards, it's, it's transported or transmitted through big pipelines, uh, the interstate pipeline system that takes the gas from whatever is being produced, in this case, to Georgia. So we have a lot of production. Back in the old days, it used to be mostly in the Gulf of Mexico, um, these offshore platforms. But now a lot of the production, if not most of it, comes from onshore. Again, a lot of this is coming from the natural gas shale resources. And is brought. Uh, the gas is brought along the pipeline system that crosses different states. And some of that comes from Texas, Louisiana. Some of that comes from the Northeast. And that is brought by the two major pipeline systems pipelines that connect to Georgia which are Southern Natural Gas and Transcontinental Pipeline Company and that brings the gas to Georgia wow
2: fascinating thanks so much for being a guest of Energy Matters on the Road this segment
6: thank you so much my pleasure
2: i'm Tim Eccles you're listening to Energy Matters on the Road
1: Energy Matters would like to thank Gas South for its support of the show.
5: Gas South has a no-deposit policy and offers some of the lowest per-therm rates in the state. Use the promo code MATTERS for a special deal. Gas South, the difference is good.
2: Chemicals here for Solar Sun World. No doubt you've seen solar panels popping up all over Georgia. If you want the precision of German engineering when it comes to solar, Solar Sun World is for you. The folks there understand the complexities of solar and how to make it work. From tax credits to inverters to accelerated depreciation, they'll unpack it all. They've been in business for over 25 years. To find out more, go to Solarsunworld.com. That's Solarsunworld.com. Hey, it's Commissioner Tim Eccles, host of Energy Matters. I want to tell you about Kevin Rowe and Rowe Insulating Company. If you need insulation anywhere within 60 miles of Athens, Georgia, you need to call 706 795. It's important, isn't it, John? It's,
4: it is the most important thing you can do in your house.
2: It's the low-hanging fruit of everything that we talk about on Energy right. Matters every single week. That's
4: exactly right.
2: Yeah, call 706-795-2854. That's 706-795-2854. Roe Insulating Company. Get comfortable. Support for Energy Matters comes from Arnold Golden and Gregory. AGG takes a business sensibility approach when it comes to advising clients. AGG provides industry knowledge. Attention to detail, transparency, and value to help businesses and individuals achieve their definition of success. AGG subscribes to the belief, not if, but how. And I certainly appreciate their weekly support of Energy Matters. Hey, this is Commissioner Eccles with Energy Matters on the Road, and I'm at the commission downtown getting ready for our rate case, and it's wonderful to have the Georgia restaurant. Association's Executive Director, Karen Bremer here. Hey, Karen.
0: Hey, glad
2: to be here. And Perry McGuire, their counsel. Hey, thanks for having us. And Perry, that's a Chick-fil-A tie you've got on. You spent some time with Truett Cathy, didn't you?
4: I did. I was in-house counsel with uh, Chick-fil-A for eight years and three years outside counsel. Now I'm in private practice and have the opportunity to work with uh, the Georgia Restaurant Association. Great. Karen,
2: uh, Our show's called Energy Matters, and it looks like this year Energy Does Matter for the Georgia Restaurant Association. Why are you guys involved in this? Rate case with the power company.
0: Um, we are seeking to. Uh, I am an, I am uh, intervening on behalf of the restaurant association and all of its uh, restaurants to see if we can get an electrical rate that has parity with other uh, similar industries and particularly with the chain restaurants who have a, a special electrical rate because of the amount of energy that they use. Restaurants are small uh, family-owned businesses around the state. Um, profit margins for 6%. If we can if we can get a little bit of assistance, a little bit of help, it'll make a significant difference to um, many of the 18,000 restaurants that employ 488,000 people here in Georgia. We are the second largest private sector employer, employing 11% of the workforce. So we create a lot of jobs, we create tons of opportunity, and I think our restaurants are the lifeblood of many communities, and we would just like to assist our restaurateurs with a little bit of savings.
2: A lot of people wonder how we set rates. They think it's just capriciously we decide, oh, we're going to raise them, we're not going to raise them. But there's really a lot of testimony that goes into this. Has it been surprising to you how much details involved with setting the utility company rates?
0: Yes, it's been incredibly eye opening to look at how things are calculated. You know, based on the cost of the equipment, the cost of lending the money, and paying the debt service to build a power plant and pay it back, and and how particularly the when the power is used really affects the rate. When when uh, it's my understanding that the peak rate is two to six uh, in in the afternoon. And that's generally speaking when restaurants are their quietest and we don't start getting busy till seven or eight o'clock. And so we don't really use that much energy um, in that time when the demand is the greatest. So I think we should have some uh, some help with those rates.
2: Yeah. When you think about our role as a commission, we're almost like referees down here, right? So we're listening to folks kind of fight it out regarding who should pay what portion of the grid system And the fact that GRA is here this year and voicing their concern, have you felt like, from talking with commissioners, that that's important that they're listening to you, that they appreciate you being a part of the process?
0: Oh yes, definitely. The commissioners and the staff, I think that they have learned a lot about the importance of our industry here in Georgia to the economy um, and again to job creation, the pride of ownership. My industry is the one of the last industries where the, the American dream can be realized by many people.
2: You know, we talk about on the show all the, all the time about the importance of advocacy and you know, we don't necessarily use that word. Uh, it's synonymous with lobbying i guess is a is is a similar word but it involves building relationships and uh, and letting folks know through an educational process how something impacts your constituency and you you uh, running the association your constituents are essentially all of these restaurant owners right
0: correct Uh, as well uh, when I think of the word advocacy, I think of the word education, because the most important component of my job is, is helping to educate elected officials, helping to educate regulatory officials, and also, obviously, educating our industry on best practices, but educating people on unintended consequences, um, how how our businesses are structured, how they're created. And again, you know, the the number of people that, that restaurants touch, um, we serve millions of meals every single day here in Georgia safely, to many people providing choices and nutrition, and um, I'm very proud to to be able to educate people about our industry.
2: Perry, my son works at a Chick-fil-A unit uh, in Athens for Shane Todd, and I know they prepare a lot of sandwiches for the University of Georgia football games. These henny pennies, I guess, that cook the chicken, the fryers, they're electric. What are some of the other things in a Chick-fil-A store that would draw a, a, an electric load there? I mean, because uh, y'all are using a lot of energy in order to serve those customers.
4: Yeah, well, thanks so much. Um, well, so I'm not as familiar with what goes on in the restaurant, although my my wife is a franchisee. As as you know, um, I get a chance to go in from time to time. But just like any restaurant, where you're going to have things like dishwashers, large freezers and refrigerators, you're going to have grills. Um, you know, in addition to the fryers for both the waffle fries and the um, the chicken, um, but uh, everything from ice cream machines to lights and fountain drinks, um, and of course. Heating and air. Um, And so they are very large. I'd say not very large power consumers, but they are substantial power consumers. And um, although, you know, I think like most uh, industries, they are starting to focus on conservation using LED lights, looking for efficiencies. And, and, you know, and and really Georgia Power has been a great partner to our industry in helping to come up with innovations in our equipment that are more energy efficient. So we appreciate, um, you know, the work that they do there. Kieran, uh, part part
2: of our show's mantra is helping people understand sustainability, technology, saving money on their energy bill. When you think about sustainability in restaurants, uh, right? I, I think about the composting that's happening in some restaurants and how they're taking those food scraps and they are uh, not tossing them, you know, into a landfill. Um, though that does make methane gas, and, and that eventually can become energy depending on the landfill. What are some other sustainability things that you've seen or noticed about some of your members across the state?
0: Um, well, I'll start with a simple one, and this isn't electricity. It's it's water, but hot water is usually powered by electricity. You know, we um, we instruct our members to ensure that they're cleaning their ice machines on a regular basis because then they become more efficient and use less electricity. Um, check all of their faucets to make sure they don't have leaky faucets. Check their spray arms for their dish machines. Um, ensure that, that all of the equipment is kept in great condition because good equipment will will be much more efficient. Um, we also share with our members and educate them about the different avenues where they can save energy, where they can do recycling. I mean, the restaurant industry has been recycling cardboard and paper for as long as I've been in it, which is 45 years, uh, as well, um, the uh, the recycling of cans and aluminum, um, as, as many things as, as you can in a restaurant, you want to go to yet another purpose.
2: You were telling me about uh, some fun bonuses you used to give employees at a restaurant that you worked at before you were over the association. Tell our audience about Uh, how you would uh, incentivize employees to save energy.
0: Oh, great. Yes. It was called my Kill a Watt program, and we educated everybody in the kitchen to not turn on the ovens the minute they walked in the restaurant in the morning, not turn on the fryers, and it was a contest to see how much we could lower the kilowatts uh, in the restaurants uh, on a monthly basis, and if we were able to achieve lower kilowatt usage than the prior month, then I would Walk through the kitchen and hand out twenty dollar bills to um, all of the cooks and the dishwashers because they were the ones that that were managing the equipment and turning it on at the appropriate time, not turning it on too early, but turning it on just just before just before the lunch rush was going to start. And we saved thousands and thousands of dollars doing uh, doing the Kill a Watt program.
2: I love it. One of the things we're talking about in this rate case is giving customers real-time information on their energy use. There's a cost to doing that. Do you feel like, uh, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but do you feel like there are a segment of restaurant owners that care enough about their energy usage that would look at that information and uh, would kind of do what you were doing uh, and, and maybe the association themselves could do a, uh, essentially a membership-wide promotion if we were able to get something like that approved.
0: Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, with technology, uh, many of our restaurateurs, I mean, technology is changing at lightning speed right now. There are so many different programs and apps that you can utilize to track your customer counts per hour. Um, there's devices that you connect to your refrigeration system. So if there's a fluctuation in power, you're notified, you know, which comes in really handy when there's an electrical outage. Um, but certainly looking at the efficiencies of their equipment. Their equipment to save money. In the restaurant industry, we talk about something called penny profit because our profits are pennies on each item that we prepare and serve to our guests. And so anything that can shave a few pennies here and a few pennies there turns into uh, more money to hire more employees, to pay bon- bonuses to employees, to spend money, um, to have your restaurant refurbished, and so the 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 extra pennies that each restaurant can save translates into other jobs and uh, and and hits and touches other industries that uh, that we use. How can folks
2: uh, contact the association if they would like to become a member? How can they how can they reach you?
0: They can reach me at uh, Karen at GA, the letter G, the letter A, the word restaurants with an S dot org or 404-467-9000.
2: And Perry, just uh, the the conclusion of this segment, you've got a book that you've uh, finished up about Truett Cathy. What's the name of that book?
4: Sure. It's called um, Nice But Not Naive and other lessons I learned from Truett Cathy. And it's just from my time as in-house counsel with Chick-fil-A and the opportunity to work closely with him um, on company matters and individual personal matters and kind of what I observed. Well, thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you, Karen.
0: Thank you for having us.
4: And thank you, Perry.
2: Thanks so much, Commissioner. You're listening to Energy Matters on the Road.
1: Gas South believes in the difference we can all make. By checking the Project Share box at the bottom of your utility bill, you can make life a little easier for your neighbors. Your one, two, or five-dollar check-off is matched by the utility and then used by the Salvation Army to help folks having a tough time paying their energy bills. It's that easy. Join PSC Commissioner Tim Eccles and many others by donating via your power bills this year. See more by clicking ProjectShareInfo.com. And thank you.